0: The crimes, the criminals. Why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's crime scene. Welcome to the crime scene. I am Jim Harold and so glad to be with you once again. And tonight we're going to talk about, well, one of the seminal true crime cases out there and also has the added benefit that, as far as we know, unless it's the perpetrator, nobody got hurt. And that's always a good thing, too. I'm talking about the case of D.B. Cooper and talking to you about a recent book and podcast series. The book is Take the Money and Run the Vanishing of D.B. Cooper. And on the line, we have Chris Williamson, who is uh, chief cook and bottle washer over at the Vanish series. He's done so much work on the case of Amelia Earhart and has turned his lens to D.B. Cooper, and we're so glad to have Chris on the line to discuss it. Chris, welcome to the show, and looking forward to talking about some D.B. Cooper.
1: Well, it's my honor. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So I got to ask you, I mean, you did, how many episodes did you do on Amelia Earhart in that case?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh Probably Well, well over 100 for Chasing Earhart. We actually just brought Chasing Earhart back in a very limited run series that we're doing right now. And then if you add in what's now season one of Vanished, uh, 16 episodes there, probably 40 hours of content alone between those shows. So hundreds of hours, uh, 140 episodes probably total so far.
0: So I I asked you that to ask you this. Why D.B. Cooper? What got you into the D.B. Cooper case and said, okay, I've fully obsessed over Amelia Earhart, and I salute you for that, by the way. I love the granular way that you covered that case. And one of my favorite things you talked about was the theory some people had that there was a woman who survived who was Amelia Earhart. And that was right. interesting. I listened to some of that. I loved that discussion. Just kind yeah. of an interesting thought experiment. But what made you say, okay, I've, I have this obsession. Now I'm going to have a new one. What what triggered it
1: for you? Yeah. And I think obsession is probably a great word. Uh You know, I just wanted to stay in aviation. People had asked us, if we were going to cover Cooper for quite some time, I'd known about it obviously from shows like Unsolved Mysteries and In Search of, and the countless, uh, countless podcasts and documentaries and books that c- continue to flood the market for DB Cooper. And despite all that, it was just sort of this unsolved case, this guy that really, unlike Earhart, existed for only about five hours that we know of. Really, uh, you know, he has no beginning and he has no ending that we know of, and that that. That thought alone was very attractive to me uh, as somebody who was investigating these things. Uh, and you know it, it allowed me to stay in, in within the bubble of aviation, which I've sort of kind of really fallen in love with over the last five to seven years or so. And uh, I had been listening to a show called The Cooper Vortex, which is a podcast hosted by Darren Schaefer, who's a big part of this book and was a big part of the series that we did. And it, it just really it got more and more incredible. The story got more and more fantastical as it went along. And really, if you remove no, no, November twenty fourth, uh, you know Thanksgiving Eve, uh, if you remove that from this story, uh, all of these suspects have incredible stories in and of themselves. And we thought, well, let's start talking about this. And and it just sort of made perfect sense for us to to just kind of go at it and start looking at this case and. And the the book and the podcast is the result, is the end result of it.
0: Now, uh, as silly as it may seem, I just realized there may be some people out there who have not been paying attention, really not paying attention, (laughs) and don't know the general story of D.B. Cooper. Can you recount for people, maybe in kind of an elevator pitch style, who, I I guess the ultimate question, who is D.B. Cooper, but... We don't, we don't know that for sure, but right. tell us who the historical figure D.B. Cooper is and what he did.
1: Sure. Well, what we know is a, a basically a middle-aged guy in a business suit, uh, possibly uh, and he had an overcoat on, possibly a trench coat. He walks into the Portland International Airport on Thanksgiving Eve of 1971. He buys a one-way ticket to Seattle. The ticket costs about $20, including tax. It's hard to imagine that now. <laughs> uh at the counter the gate agent asks him you know what's your name and he responds dan cooper so the gate agent doesn't think anything of it writes dan cooper on the ticket uh cooper boards the plane to seattle in fact he's one of the very last to board and he sits in the very back of the plane and right before takeoff he hands one of the stewardesses a note uh the stewardess's name was florence schaffner And, uh, you know, these stewardesses are young, and they assume that this is just another middle-aged dude trying to hit on him, you know, pass him, pass her his phone number, something of that nature. And uh, so she just kind of doesn't think anything of it. She slips it in her pocket and kind of goes about her business, uh, pre-flight business. And he kind of gets a little perturbed by that. And after a few moments, he sort of uh, nudges her again and says, Miss, uh, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. And uh, at this point, he gives her his ransom note. And it's really important to note that, you know, there's uh, nobody for the entirety of this flight, the passengers, other than the flight crew, the passengers do not know they're being skyjacked. So this is a, a, he does this completely under the radar. Uh, He wants $200,000 and he wants four parachutes uh, ready to go on the ground in Seattle before they land. And uh, he wants to sort of land on this really isolated, poorly lit runway in Seattle. And, uh, you know, they land in Seattle, they deplane everybody. Uh, He lets everybody off and then they bring him the money and he gets the money. And to make a very long story short about there's about a five hour process that goes on here. And uh, somewhere between 8.11 and 8.13 p.m., he basically exits the aircraft. He tells uh, another stewardess who had taken over for Florence and sat with him for the majority of the flight uh, to go ahead and go to the cockpit with the rest of the crew. She turns around. She sees him put the parachute on and she says she notices Hey, it looks like he'd done that many times before, which is kind of ties into the suspect that we talk about in the book. He jumps out of the plane. They feel in the cockpit, the pressure bump at around 8.11 or so, 8.13. And he jumps into the night sky. And from that point on, nobody has heard from Dan D.B. Cooper since. So that's basically a very tight nutshell of what happened uh, on on Thanksgiving Eve of 71. Now, the
0: reason he's known as D.B. Cooper, was it a was it a, a journalist or was it an a- agent or somebody miswrote his name? And then it's been D.B. Cooper ever since. Is that
1: basically the gist? That's right. Yeah. He was never he he never wanted to be known as D.B. Cooper that we know of. So it was Dan Cooper. We think well, it's there's a lot of speculation on why he chose that name. There was a, a French, a Canadian comic book, uh, with the star of the comic book being Dan Cooper. Uh, that kind of leads into the one of the theories that maybe you know Cooper was Canadian and he just you know he was up in Canada and he knew that story and knew that hero or that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but DB is is something that was just coined by the press uh, by accident, and uh, it just kind of stuck. And now DB Cooper is what he's been known for for you know 51 years now.
0: Well, it's so funny you mentioned the aspect about parachuting. Because even before you mentioned that, I was going to say, isn't it obvious that whoever did this had exper- uh, experience parachuting? Which makes me think ex military. I mean, almost certainly. Mm-hmm. I, and I mean, for example, if something, first of all, something like this, I don't think could happen now exactly as it happened. There's a, a lot more security. You know, you just don't walk in and buy a ticket, kind of thing. You got to show ID, sure. all this stuff. But the thing is, is that he knew enough about how airplanes work. Uh, he probably knew that they had to drop down to a certain altitude. I mean, he he knew all this stuff. And and you didn't have back in the day, folks, you know, now you can learn almost anything. Look it up on YouTube. Look it up on the Internet. You didn't have that back then. You know, yeah. you had to learn through experience uh, or by going to school for something. You know, it's you couldn't self-teach yourself as much as you can these days. So yeah. I guess by definition, wouldn't he have to be – somebody with at least some aviation experience and probably some kind of paramilitary or parachuting experience with the military
1: yeah i think that's a that that's a really good hypothesis that's that's what we speculate in the book and we talked to a lot of experts in the book and in the original series that talk about him having some kind of military experience. It, what it, what it tells me for sure is that he's got something. He knows uh, he knows more about the plane than really the pilots do. Uh, you know, it, it, this is only about a forty five minute flight. They're up in the air for about two and a half hours, and uh, you know, once they get on the ground in Seattle, he's got very specific flight instructions going forward. You know, he wants the plane to fly to Mexico City at two hundred miles per hour. He wants the plane to fly at ten thousand feet with the flaps set to fifteen degrees and the landing gear down. He wants the cabin to be depressurized uh, and he wants to take off with the rear stairs down. And he kind of goes back and forth with the pilots on that because, and they have to contact Boeing because nobody knows (laughs) if this can happen, but he apparently knows. And after a while, he sort of just throws up his hands and just says, okay, you know, we're not going to argue about it. we will deal with it. I'll lower them when we're in the air. And so that really tells me that, you know, not only like, uh, you know, Darren says in the book, forget knowledge that tells me he has an, an immense amount of experience. And, uh, you know, when we get to sort of the suspect in the back half of the book that we sort of present for consideration, uh, you look at someone like that in their career. And it's it's it would have this this kind of a jump would have been a walk in the park. So, yes, I absolutely agree that this would have been somebody that knew their way around a parachute, knew their way around skydiving. Um and maybe even knew their way around these types of jobs. So um, could an average guy have done it? Sure. Uh, they, there's a lot of people that speculate that it could have possibly been an average guy. Uh, but most of the suspects do have some kind of military experience, which makes perfect sense when we're talking about what we're talking about here.
0: Now, I've always thought about this as kind of a lone wolf. I've never really thought about the idea this was any kind of conspiracy. But, you know, just actually thinking about this tonight, I was thinking, well, wait a minute. Maybe he had some help on the inside or maybe there was someone else. Maybe it was combined knowledge. It wasn't just Mm -hmm. his knowledge. Is that something – because usually I think when we look and see it in the media, it's really kind of portrayed as – you know, it's like the Lee Harvey Oswald thing, the lone nut. Yeah. And and yeah. Um, he's kind of uh, like presented as this Robin Hood and uh, this iconic character, and he did it himself. I never hear conspiracy talked about, but is that something that's possible that it was at least one or more people helping him, maybe from the inside?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, if it's, again, going back to our suspect, we speculate that, you know, that our, our suspect uh, you know his name is ted B Braden, and I'm sure we'll get into him a little bit tonight but he uh, was really close friends with jack Singlob who was one of the original founders of the CIA uh you know he had really uh, interesting connections and i think uh, it's very possible some of these suspects even link together there's another gentleman uh, by the name of dwayne Weber who's a really popular suspect who people believe you know it would have been cooper uh there's also people that speculate that dwayne would have actually been cooper's accomplice that he would have helped them get out of Get out of dodge, essentially. You know, when this guy hits the ground, uh, he's not in the middle of nowhere, although it, visually it looks like he might be. Uh, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, you're, where he jumped in that what they call the drop zone is an area that, you know, you could, if you knew the area, the terrain, or if you were used to getting out of those types of areas, you could probably get somewhere pretty quickly. And if you had assistance to get out of there, it would be even easier. Um, you combine that with the idea that he had, you know, about 12 hours, uh, maybe even a little bit longer than that of a head start before the authorities really could could kick off a search for him. Keep in mind, this is Thanksgiving Eve. Uh, it's in the middle of the night. It's black, black, black out there. So they're not going to be able to kick off a search instantly. It takes time to figure out, get their bearings, figure out what happened exactly. And uh, so he that all, that all basically goes to him as a, as a positive for him to get out of Dodge. So if he had a, an accomplice, um, it's certainly possible. And if it was somebody like Singlob, uh that wasn't maybe directly responsible but maybe uh indirectly or overseeing something you know uh making sure that he had the connections to disappear and to maybe get the money out of out of the way uh you know the sky's the limit you can go as as hardcore as you want and drill down as much as you want with that
0: um so let me ask you this the survivability of the jump basically everything you've said If you know what you're doing, you know where you're going, you know the area, you can survive this jump. Because I think the perception, and I don't know if this is intentional, you can comment on this, is that there's a very good chance this guy died in the jump. Because you see those aerial shots with all that forestry and all those huge Mm -hmm. trees and you just figure, oh, that guy fell in the trees. He's some kind of nut. He fell in the trees and he died. And yeah. in fact, if I remember correctly, a young boy, uh, I think it was a young boy, maybe it was a girl, but maybe I thought it was a boy around 1980, they found some money that had washed up um, yeah. and, and found some of the the bills. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I thought the narrative was always along the line, this guy's probably dead. Is that is that true? Was somebody trying to push that narrative? And it sounds like you don't think he died in the jump that mm. he survived.
1: Yeah, and I can say with confidence that he that the the likelihood of him surviving the jump was insanely high. Um, I I I know that there are some folks out there. There's there's a I would say there's a there's a vocal minority out there that says that hey, there's no way this guy could have survived the jump. He likely died on impact or got, you know, you know, the, blown into smithereens. If the bomb was real, you know, particularly that's an interesting uh, scenario because. That bomb is real, and he hits the ground with that bomb on his possession. He's going to blow up, and it's going to be like disintegration almost. And they're never going to find him. But I've talked to a lot of people in the vortex, and there, there is a you know there is this really incredible group of people that have been researching this for a lot longer than I have. That that all say almost unanimously that he survived the jump. That the jump was not even not even a difficult jump. You know, for someone with the experience of some of these suspects, it not only would have been. Uh, doable, but it would have been easy. And so, you know, I would say I'm pretty confident saying he survived the jump as far as the $5,800 that was found at Tina Bar by Brian Ingram, who you just referenced, a little boy. uh, You know, it's possible that that he could have lost a chunk of the money or a bushel of the money, or he could have lost a a, a part of it. I don't think he went up, walked up. I don't think he landed, walked upstream, buried the money and then kept going. I think that maybe he lost some of that money. It hit the water and it ended up getting self buried basically. And it it came up, you know, years later, about nine years, 10 years later, depending on, uh, I might be off a little bit on that, but somewhere around there. Yeah. And so it's very possible, uh, you know, that he survived the jump. The likelihood is small that he died on impact but it's sure it's possible he could have died on impact it, they never found a body they've combed every square inch of that drop zone area which means you think that they would probably have come across a body if if or bones at the very least and uh they did they did find a dead body out there but it wasn't cooper so you know i, I don't know uh, that that's a great question and it's one that it's one of the questions that people just endlessly speculate on in this case you know did he survive or did he not
0: this is a um faint memory and I don't know mm. if it's real something I saw but did they find his was his necktie left on the plane
1: it or? was on the plane we actually have the necktie we actually have the 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 JC the second male well we don't know if it's secondhand but the, the JC Penny necktie if you go to the FBI's website you'll see it's one of the key pieces of information as a matter of fact they're doing scientific studies on the tie it's, it's really a miracle that we have it and it's interesting because we don't know if that tie you know this guy was very thorough very thorough in his in his execution of this plan so the tie didn't fall off by accident he physically removed the tie it was like a clip on tie so i don't know why he would have done that there's a lot of speculation as to why he may have done that a lot of people there are some people that believe that he did that as sort of just an f u to the the fbi like here's a piece of my you know catch me if you can kind of thing right uh, but a lot of work has been has gone into uh, you know, scientifically studying the tie and looking for, you know, particles on the tie and all this really amazing active investigations that are going on right now. So, yeah, he did leave his tie. It is one of the key pieces of information that we have. Well,
0: let me let me say, we did on the crime scene for our first episode back at the beginning of the year, we interviewed Edward Humes, Pulitzer Prize winner. And there was, yeah. and actually coincidentally, there was a case, I believe, up in the Pacific Northwest, a uh, 35-year-old case and they were be able to get some DNA. Now, they were able to capture DNA of a living person. Yeah. But they took that and they ran it against a database of, like, uh, genealogical DNA samples mm-hmm. somehow. I think that's how they did it and figured out who it it was. So, ostensibly, it would seem to me they could take that same information on a tie. Now, again, we're talking about 50-plus years. Sure. But I know now... Um, Humes was telling me it used to take uh, a blood spot the size of a quarter now they can pick up DNA material microscopically
1: right. so
0: theoretically if he touched it um could he have theoretically left some DNA material of some type on the tie that at some point could be run against um you know this huge swath of genealogical DNA out there they wouldn't even need, um, a sample per se, and then they could sure. almost come up with a list of suspects. Is that something that could be done? That's kind of along the lines of what I think her name is. CC Moore has done with DNA. Yeah. Is that something I'm guessing I'm not the first person to think of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, you're, you're definitely, uh, you know, you're definitely going, going the right direction. A lot of people are working on that. Uh, they haven't discovered, uh, you know, they, ha- I think there was a partial DNA match on the tie, but they couldn't, they couldn't match it to anybody. Uh, so right. they, they still didn't know. Um, and so now, what they're doing is they're working on particular, maybe some particles. They think there are some suspects. There's one that's been in the news um, recently that uh, a gentleman by the name of Eric Ulis is is really championing um, in the news, and um, he is, you know, basically theorizing potentially that some of the part that this guy worked maybe in a factory and that he wore a tie all the time, and some of the particles that were from the you know found in the factory or whatever. Uh, you know, could be identified on the tie, which would narrow it down and make Cooper's world really, really small. It might narrow it down to, you know, a few hundred dudes, uh, it's possible, but that's a heck of a lot better than what we got right now, which is basically just a crapshoot. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're trying to narrow this stuff down and, and attacking this in any way that they can. And that tie is, I know has been at the center of, of a lot of these active investigations over the course of the last, certainly in the last 30 years, um, yeah, he's he's definitely uh, they're definitely working on that, and I think we have with all this genealogy, uh, you know, uh, advancement going on right now, and the advancement of DNA and, and the way they can pull DNA off pretty much anything now, uh, it's 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 possible. I would dare even say likely. My optimism would say that uh, we'll have something on that tie at some point that will contribute to ultimately the ending of this case.
0: Very interesting indeed. Our guest is Chris Williamson, and uh, he's talking to us all about D.B. Cooper. His book is Take the Money and Run, The Vanishing of D.B. Cooper. And we'll be back after this. Thanks for listening to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. We're so glad to be back. Please make sure to follow the show in the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. Also, please share the show with your friends who are fascinated by true crime the way we are. Maybe even text them a link to this episode. Finally, be sure to rate and review the show in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for your help and for listening. Be careful out there. And now back to Jim Harold's crime scene. We're back on the crime scene. We're talking all about D.B. Cooper with someone who knows because he just came out with a book on it called Take the Money and Run, The Vanishing of D.B. Cooper. And our guest tonight is Chris Williamson. Um, Chris, uh, you know, uh, in the past history of crime scene, I got to talk to uh, a gentleman who had written some books with John Douglas. I believe his name is like the prototypical FBI profiler, the guy that kind of invented it. Sure. Um, I'm sure there's been a profile on Cooper that's been done. Um, mm-hmm. what does that profile from what you can gather look like? What kind of person are we talking about here? I know we talked about probably the military aspect, the yeah. avionics, uh, or aviation experience, but what, what are the, what do the profilers say?
1: Well, part of the reason why it's be- become such a sort of mesmerizing cases is this guy could have been anyone uh, you could have walked right by him in an airport in 1971 and never thought anything about it he just was some he was just basically your average looking middle-aged white businessman you know white guy a white guy uh nondescript uh very unassuming you know we know for for sure that um you know there was multiple sketches done on him and even the sketches we talk about this in, in great depth in the book but the sketches we sort of call into question a little bit, you know, everybody leaning so aggressively into those sketches based off of eyewitness testimony. We know, uh, you know, that there's a profile on him that, you know, there's, he's about maybe five nine, five ten to maybe six feet. So we have a little bit of a room for error there. Uh, we know he was, you know, he was thin, but he was fit looking. Uh, we know that some people say he had, you know, brown eyes. Some people say he had blue eyes. He had his glasses on, uh, on the flight, but not for the entirety of the flight. He boards the flight. He didn't have the glasses on. And when he slips the note over to Florence, uh, he puts the glasses on and he has them for the duration of the flight. He never takes them off again. So anybody who saw him from that point on can't really speculate on his eye color. Uh, we know that he was dressed like a businessman. He had some people say he had loafers on. Uh, we speculate that maybe they weren't necessarily loafers, but maybe some kind of a boot, some kind of a military boot that might have uh, attributed a little bit to his height one way or another, depending on you know who you believe and who you talk to. Uh, He was his accent wasn't really anything that an American could uh, discern as anything other than just like a Midwest American accent. It wasn't
0: American English,
1: standard American English. Absolutely. Uh, You know, he uh, was very calm, cool and collected the entirety of the flight. He didn't yell. He didn't get up in arms over anything. He uh, knew what he was doing. He had complete control the whole time. And uh, that's really sort of sort of the the overall profile that we have. We know he smoked a bunch of cigarettes on the plane. Uh, that's back when you could do that, of course. Uh, we know that because uh, Tina Mucklow, who sat next to him, uh, lit his cigarettes for him for the duration of the flight and had conversation with him. Uh, and we know that um, you know he was just very chill. He was very relaxed. Uh, you, you couldn't you couldn't tell that he was skyjacking a flight. He was that calm. I would guess that his blood pressure was probably pretty normal that also leads me to believe that you know he was somebody that had done this a lot that it wasn't like a you know a one a one shot deal for him so uh, that's really just a, a general profile of of who we think db cooper was and that's 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 obviously contributed to why it's been so difficult to sort of nail down a an identity on him
0: When you say it's someone who has done this a lot, that to me says something like a three-letter agency or like a CIA, (laughs) someone who has been in kind of covert operations. Because I don't know how many times you get to hijack a plane, but somebody in something, and again, maybe I've watched too many uh, spy movies, but it would mm-hmm. seem to me somebody in the CIA, for example, who were in in some kind of operations would be used to being in high pressure situations, maybe life threatening situations where they could easily lose their life. So that would seem to fit the profile of someone who could pull this off.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I would say, um, you know, that's. That really ties into to Ted B. Braden, and you know the gentleman that we talk about in the back half of the book. He was uh, just a just a quick you know quick rundown on Braden. He lied about his age to fight uh, in World War II. He kind of saw action at the very tail end of the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, he also fought in Vietnam, uh, all throughout Vietnam, and he was a basically a mercenary for hire, a contractor. And uh, you know he uh, was very close friends to Jack Singlob, who was one of the founders of the CIA. So that kind of ties into that three letter acronym there potentially having connections there uh we know that he was uh prosecuted for being a for, for desertion for a wall basically and uh he was he got universally or un, ununiversally ununiversal treatment i should say uh for somebody who was in sort of uh you know in custody of the military uh and this was a guy that really had this incredible back background who did all these covert operations and worked for the mcfee sogs and they did these kinds of jumps uh, this would have been somebody that would have had no problem doing it. And he's not the only one that had, you know, really interesting, you know, military backgrounds. But it it really does sort of tie into the idea that this guy might have had the connections to pull something like this off. And it's, it's interesting in and of itself.
0: Do you feel that the bomb was real that uh, Cooper referenced or do you think it was a bluff?
1: I think it was a bluff. I really do. I don't think. I, I think the execution of the plan was was too well done for someone to for to, for him to bring that for him to bring that bomb on board uh, and potentially risk everything, including his own life and blowing up you know this entire plane with you know 36 passengers and a flight crew on it up um I, I really believe he was he was bluffing. I think he made it look real. I think the the bomb was... I think it's somebody that knew what they were doing when it comes to maybe creating a bomb that maybe wouldn't have been an armed bomb or maybe there's a key component missing. Uh, just something en- enough to fool a stewardess or fool somebody that he's going to show it to. But I think he was smart enough to know that if there was an air marshal on board or if there was anybody on board that might challenge the validity of his claim that he had this bomb that he was going to basically blow up the plane... Uh, and they were to step forward and challenge him. Uh, I think he would have things would have gone south, you know, real fast, real quick. And if the bomb wasn't real, he would have ended up being in you know prison for the rest of his life. So I really lean towards the fact that the bomb was probably a fake. Uh, and and the fact that there's no explosion when he hit the ground or anything like that also lends to that uh, you know to that idea. But uh, I guess we'll never know.
0: Do, and to that point, um, you know, we were talking about the DNA and you you've said you try to be an optimist about all this. Do you think there's any chance yeah. that that a final solution will be fit? I mean, I look at something like, for example, like the Kennedy assassination, and I've always yeah. been very open that I believe that there was at least some element of conspiracy. I think Lee Harvey Oswald was involved, but I don't think he was the only person involved. And I yes. think for various reasons, probably it was let's put it this way. Things could have been done in a more forthcoming way. And there may have been good, some good reasons for that, like avoiding mm. World War III. I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> right. Uh, right. But I guess my, my point is this, is that over time, I've kind of stepped away from like I used to read everything about JFK and the whole thing. Yeah. And yeah. now it so far has gone. I mean, we're talking 60 years. This will be the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. It's like nothing new is going to come out. It's it's Mm -hmm. it's done. It's over. Mm -hmm. We're never going to know it's going to be lost in the midst of time. Do you have that feeling with D.B. Cooper? It sounds like Mm. you still hold out hope. I mean, it's a little bit, quote, newer case, eight years newer. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you hold out some hope that with the technology that's coming on board and those kind of things that we might get a little closer to a solution on this one?
1: Yeah, I, I I think that's pretty safe to say. I think if you combine that, combine what you just mentioned that you know the advancement of technology, especially when it comes to DNA and and all the stuff that they're doing with the tie and just so many other aspects the, the money and the the diatoms that were found on the money and all that all that scientific stuff. Uh, I really think when you combine that with the idea that that somebody likely knows something. About this case that's never been broken open before or blown open before. I think the the longer it gets, uh, I think the the likelihood of it being solved is higher. Actually, because the the Cooper Vortex and you know the people that are in the vortex are some of the most brilliant people in the world that are looking into this, and they're aggressive uh, and they they don't take no for an answer. They won't stop searching, uh, you know. And I think uh, just my experience stepping into the vortex for even a little bit. I, I can tell that, and I can say that pretty much without hesitation. So I think, yeah, with the advancement of DNA and advancement of technology, and and uh, you know, his world maybe getting a little bit smaller. Uh, I think it's a very high likelihood that we'll find out who DB Cooper was. So, you know, and I, I think it's really the same thing with uh, you know with Zodiac. We're getting ready to step into Zodiac right now for for vanished, and and that's another one that's really crazy. And I think the likelihood of that is of being solved is is high. I think we'll find out what happened to Amelia Earhart at some point. Uh, I really do. Uh, maybe that's just, yeah, me being very optimistic, maybe overly optimistic. Uh, but I, I prefer to have that attitude. I prefer to think, go into these investigations thinking that, hey, you know, they're going to be solved in one way or another. At some point, we'll know the answers to these questions and we'll find out what happens. But I, I you know, that's my just my optimism. I,
0: guess. I, I well, uh, Then again, I mean, look at something like BTK. It was solved Mm -hmm. after decades. I think it was 30 or 40 years. I mean, yeah, it's starting to come around, especially with this DNA piece. It's so, so powerful. Uh, That Mm -hmm. case that I mentioned that was 35 years old when it was cracked open. I mean, again, it's it's fascinating what can be done. And we're not even all the way there. The advancements are just going to continue and continue. So I guess the, the question is, why does this case continue to fascinate so many people like so many people you mentioned in search of? I'm guessing that's the mm-hmm. first place as a small boy that I heard of the D.B. Cooper case. I can still hear that that background music in my head. Yeah. Um, but ever since then, it's held a great fascination for me. And, yeah. you know. I'm over yeah. 50 years old. I'm a little bit mm. older than the D.B. Cooper case itself. So I'm getting up there and I'm still fascinated by it from the time I was a little kid. But why is that? Why do we fall into the Cooper vortex, as you call it?
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's not having a period on the end of the sentence. It really is as cut and dry as that. Same thing with Earhart. You know, people find a case that they really love and they just latch onto it. And there's so much information out there. The FBI has been so forthcoming with everything they've got and everything's out there in 302s. And, you know, thanks to people like Mark Zaid, who are, you know, for pushing for all this information to come out, you know, it's almost like water trickling out of a hose, you know, a little bit at a time, you're getting a little bit more information. And that just seems to fascinate people. Cooper, you know, like you said at the top of the show, he didn't kill anyone. This isn't a murderer. We're not talking about Zodiac or Jack the Ripper or some of these other really horrible cases that we've covered for the show. Now it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make it any, you know, any better. Or right, any, it's a bad uh, thing, but yeah, it's a bad crime. I mean, he definitely potentially put the lives of, you know, almost forty people or over forty people at risk here. But he gets away, and people do attach that Robin Hood persona to him. Some people think he's just nothing but a two-bit, you know, two-bit criminal. But w- the idea that we never found not only him but we never found the rest of the money. There's one hundred ninety-three ish thousand dollars of money floating around out there. That we don't know what happened to, Uh, you know, we've even, we've even theorized in the book that uh, I didn't, but one of our guests did that, that he, maybe he donated it, which would have been, Hmm. I mean, how, how amazing would that have been? If if that's a great way to get rid of it, maybe it wasn't about the money. Maybe it was about just trying to, you know, basically put it to the man, you know, so to speak, or whatever, however you want to say it. And the money was just part of it. Um, And, you know, maybe he donates the money and that's why the money's never been found. You know, you would never find that money again. Uh, You know, maybe he had ties to to wash to get the money wash and 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 to, you know, to take it out of circulation or to put it into a different type of circulation. I mean, you can speculate on all these different questions. I think there's so many questions at the end of the day for this story that it just keeps fascinating people. Again, it's not unlike Earhart. You know, we know what happened, uh, you know, on that morning up until a certain point. And then after that, it's just all speculation and people gravitate toward that. Uh, They gravitate toward that the same way they gravitate toward true crime. And all these unsolved murders that are out there and the, the hope that maybe, uh, you know, they can, these murders can be solved or in these cases can be put to bed. And and uh, Cooper is just one of those ones that he said that he, he's really, you know, stood the test of time. I mean, along with Earhart and along with Ripper and along with a lot of these other ones that we cover for the show. So, uh, you know, uh, Cooper is a, a fascination and he's an enigma and he's a ghost. And, uh, you know, we've been chasing ghosts for a long time. I know a little something about that. And, uh, you know, I think that's why people just they want to know, you know, people want to know. And uh, I think it's just as cut and dry as that. And if they want to
0: know about D.B. Cooper, I would say they should check out Take the Money and Run, The Vanishing of D.B. Cooper. And I'm looking at it right here on Amazon. And also, of course, Chris, you have your... uh, Your great podcast. So explain how people can get the book and get your podcast, whether it's the DB Cooper flavor, the Amelia Earhart flavor, whatever it may be.
1: Sure. You can go to vanishedshow.com, just the word vanished and show.com. That's got all of our, that's got our entire archive for the show all the way back to season one. And, uh, you know, season three, we're right in sort of in the middle of, like I said, we're getting ready to step into Zodiac. Uh, after that, we'll cover Jimmy Hoffa. God help me. We'll cover Jesse James. We'll cover Alcatraz and we'll cover Amy Johnson. And that'll wrap season three of the show. Uh, so we got some big marquee cases coming up. And uh, the books are both out. Rabbit Hole is uh, my investigation into Amelia Earhart. It's like uh, the Amelia Earhart uh, you know, encyclopedia, people call it, or the Amelia Earhart Bible, uh, which is a, a big compliment. That's out. And Take the Money and Run, of course, is my second book. And uh, we're working on book three right now. Uh, that will come out hopefully sometime maybe next year. Or, I don't know. I promised my wife I wouldn't write this year in 23. So maybe uh, I'll have to take a break and we'll see. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can get the show anywhere shows or anywhere podcasts are found. All major podcast platforms. Um, you know, Spotify, Apple, Google, all that jazz. Uh, we're pretty much everywhere. Just Google vanished. And uh, it's uh, it's going to come up.
0: Chris, it's been an honor and thank you so much for joining us on the crime scene. And hopefully those answers will come. And I think people like you uh, are a big part in finding those
1: answers. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for tuning in to The Crime Scene. We appreciate it. As we have relaunched, we would appreciate it very much if you rate and review the shows. Also, please tell a friend, maybe even text them a link to this very episode if you enjoyed it as much as I did. And we thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody. And as always, be careful out there. Bye-bye.